Hi, welcome to The Trauma Tapes, a podcast about overwhelming experiences and how to cope with the traces they leave on our lives. This is episode one, um, track one, The Trauma Bond. Um, I'm MC McDonald, and I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows, who is my soundboard for all things, and she is going to be the official soundboard and producer for the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. I can't wait to get started. I think we have to explain our names because I just messed it up already. <laughs> no, it's okay. So in the family, we call Elizabeth Lisa and uh, I go by Mac. So we may occasionally call each other those names. Yeah. They're not other people. It's us. It's just uh, <laughs> our uh, aliases, mm-hmm. our uh, familial aliases. So don't, don't get confused, okay. please. <laughs> okay. So first of all, thank you to everyone who's writing in. Really appreciate it. If you want your story featured, um, just write us at um, thetraumatapes at gmail.com. All right. Do you want to get started? Read our first letter. Okay. So our first letter is from Why Do I Keep Going Back? And it's, um, it's a very interesting story. So I'll just get into it. Why do I keep going back? I've been divorced twice, but it's the second divorce that I need help to understand. I'll begin with divorce number one. After 22 years of marriage, we just became roommates and drifted apart. Looking back, it should have probably happened three years earlier, but I couldn't stomach the possibility of my daughter being raised part-time by another man if my ex-wife had decided to remarry. I stuck it out. There really wasn't any fighting or arguments. We just went our way trying to be the best parents we could. I'm happy to say my daughter is a beautiful, self-actualized human being and a beautiful soul. We have a true soul connection and are there for one another as people providing insight for one another. It's not daddy tells daughter what to do. It's I appreciate daddy for the most part and what he has learned in his life. And I will take his insight into consideration. Anyway, divorced in a small town. And as I like to say, the town got too small. I landed a job in a new town, fresh start, beaches, golf courses, etc. Newly divorced and an influx of single women, both local and tourist on the dating apps. I played the field. But after a while, the excitement wore off and I yearned for a deeper connection. I have, for the most part, been a relationship type, even since high school. I met a woman and we seemed compatible and we'd stayed together for over three years. However, I had to deal with an ex-husband an eight-year-old child every other week, and her drug addiction. But I could provide her a loving opportunity, and she will find her way, right? Wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We then went off again, on again. Why did I keep going back? The end finally came to an end, and I met who would be my second wife. Gorgeous and smart, she was in the process of leaving her abusive, alcoholic husband. However, she had addiction issues as well. I felt a lot of compassion for her and thought, okay, she's coming from a toxic environment. And if I provide a loving, compassionate environment, she will work towards a growing partnership with me. She ended up moving out and we ended up moving in together. Her ex-husband stalked her at work and called twice a week, drunk, every week for 14 weeks. Even though they were divorced, 
We were still in too close of proximity to him, and the stalking and calling continued even after the divorce. A new work opportunity presented itself in another state, and I felt this would be a great opportunity to really begin fresh. I would start my new job, and she would take six months off to get adjusted and then start working again, too. I was excited. Great career opportunity, new state, new slate that we can write. So let's get married, as this would solidify my commitment to the relationship. So we got engaged a couple of weeks after moving. Looking back, the time when she wasn't working started to really unravel things. There was alcohol consumption during the day while I was working. And when I came home, I wasn't sure which personality I was going to be dealing with. Inconsistency, confusion, anger, sloppiness, threats of leaving, etc., were all parts that I would just have to deal with. But I kept believing things would turn around if I just kept trying harder and, and I had to be patient. So she got a job and we got married. We rented a house to have the wedding in the backyard and had family stay with us. We had a total of 25 close friends and family, and there was obviously drinking involved. Long story short, there was an explosion on our wedding night and she attacked me, slapping me in the face and scratched my arm, chest and face. I had to go to sleep in a guest room over the garage as I was afraid for my safety. I was beside myself. What the hell did I just do? I got up early in the morning and contacted the minister to see what would have to be done in order to not turn in the marriage paperwork. After back and forth, they wanted us to sign an affidavit to not hold them liable. I decided not to pursue, again, thinking it would work out. We moved from an apartment to a nice house. We were excited. We painted the rooms, cleaned really well, put up drapes, even set up a Zen room, etc. During the holidays that year, my company started going through some changes, which made things with work feel a little, a little unstable. I was thinking about new, more stable jobs and talking to my wife about the next best step. One night while talking about it, my wife started ranting that there was too much financial uncertainty and that I needed to take her previous debts, etc. She was drinking. She ran out of a bottle of wine and went out to get some more. When she came back, she began on her second bottle, and then we began to argue. She took my tablet and threw it down the stairs. We argued. She slapped me in the face and ear, which was bleeding, and then went to the bedroom and knocked over a lamp that was on our nightstand. Called the police and lied to them and told them I threw it at her as she had a cut foot from her stepping on the light bulb glass. Meanwhile, my face and ear are bleeding, and they took her word and arrested me. I was in jail for three days. That is required in the state for domestic violence. She later told the truth on the witness stand that I did not throw the lamp. Charges were dropped and the arrest expunged. After I got out, I moved in with my sister. We decided to separate and eventually divorce. And then COVID hit. The intensity of it all brought us together again. And we bonded off and on until around June. The same patterns of anger and rage and confusion kept happening, and we stopped talking in July. I worked on myself with therapy, yoga, meditation, etc. The loneliness comes in waves. My therapist recommended the dating apps to get me out meeting new people. I have been on some great dates. I've even had some short-lived relationships, but I started to get frustrated that nothing was working long-term. So what do I do? 
I contacted the ex after being no contact for four months. We got together in November. It went well for a couple of weeks. We argued again over Christmas, took another break, and then she texted me. And then she told me that she still loved me. She tested positive for COVID. I don't want to get it, so I distanced myself until she is negative again, and she accused me of not supporting her. So we're back to no contact again. But here's the thing I cannot understand. Why do I keep going back? Oi. I have I have goosebumps. I know. Poor guy. I know. Seems like his intentions are are really good. And yeah. Things aren't working out, unfortunately. Yeah. And he's confused about it. Right. So first of all, hugs, because that sounds really hard. Um, and I just, I think I want to get something like really clear from the get-go, which is that this is an abusive relationship, right? Like I'm not generally a big fan of labeling other people's experience because I think that the person who's living it should get to say what it is. Um, but it's kind of startling to me that I don't think the word abuse appeared in the letter. I don't think he no. called her abusive, no. even though she's been, you know, it's risen to the level of physical abuse. It sounds like it's abusive both emotionally and physically. Um, no, he doesn't. He, he talks about her drinking and that kind of being the reason right. for the abuse. And I, I like, I wonder if part of that is because the letter writer is male and his abuser is female, um, right? We typically, when we think of abusive relationships, we kind of gender them and we think that only women can be abused by only men. And that's not true, right? Any human in a relationship with another human can be abused. Right. Um, right. Absolutely. So, okay. So let's first talk about why, what's going on. I have a lot of thoughts here. Um I think I want to talk about stuff on the brain level and I want to talk about Freud a little bit, and then we'll talk about what to do to stop. Um, first, I think we need like a tiny little primer on what trauma does to the brain, because this is going to be central here to understanding what's going on. Um, tra traumatic experience explodes the recording mechanism in the brain, right? So part of what our brain is doing all the time is recording the things that we're going through so that we can put them away and integrate them with our other memories. That's how we make sense of the world as people who live in the present, but have access to the past and also the future, right? That's a critical part of our, the way our psychology is structured. And most events get filed away. Like we can understand them. We can put them in relation to ourself and also all of our other experience, but Sometimes things are so overwhelming that we can't file them. The recording mechanism in that moment gets, gets exploded. It's not working. Um, and we could talk more about why if you want to, but that's, that's one of the things we now know about the brain. So instead of an organized memory file, we get, um, we get a fragmented file, a fragmented recording. Um, and because it's fragmented, it doesn't get fully understood and integrated. So it remains present and it sticks out um, until we can understand it and integrate it in some way. Um, and usually when it's sticking out into the present, that means it's coming out as some kind of symptom that we don't understand or that is bothering us. 
And that can be the symptoms of trauma are so varied that it's fascinating. And so one of the the mysterious and I think actually kind of genius ways that our mind tries to do this, to understand and integrate something like that, is by engaging in something that Freud called the repetition compulsion. So Freud caveat, this is what I wrote in my notes, Freud caveat. Lots of the time we think we have to throw Freud away entirely because of what he did to his patients. And it's worth noting that Freud and Breuer took on a bunch of patients. They tried to understand their trauma once they realized what's going on, which was that they were being sexually assaulted by all of these people in society, including Freud's own father. They rejected and abandoned their patients. And so lots of what Freud has done has been sort of dismissed because of his unethical behavior. But we can't throw him out entirely because Freud and his whole little cohort of people, so that's Joseph Breuer, Charcot, all these other big names, um, they got a lot right about trauma in the 1880s. So like they, we've known a lot of essential things about trauma before we had anything, any kind of knowledge about the brain. So that's the Freud caveat. <laughs> We can understand that he did terrible things and also that he was right about lots of things. Um, so when we can't understand or integrate something, we are compelled to repeat it sometimes because on some level we think like, okay, well, I couldn't fully understand that the first time through. Let me just go ahead and do it again Interesting. so that I can get it. I know. Isn't that crazy? So you, you might create the same experience in order to yes. try to understand it. 100%. And it's really important wow. to understand that this is a compulsion. So it's not a conscious decision. It's a compulsion, which means it's like a magnetic force. And there's like, so listen to this, there's crazy examples of this that are just like wild. So Bessel van der Kolk, who we'll talk about a lot, because he's a huge figure in trauma studies. He um, talked about this case in one of his books where this guy had so he had got, this guy had gotten himself accidentally caught in the middle of a shootout between cops and a, a gang. And this person wasn't involved in the police. He wasn't involved in the gang. He just was like in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was shot. And his injuries were such that he had no conscious memory of anything happening. Like he did not remember that event. He recovered, he survived and recovered and all that. But he had no, no conscious memory at all. One year to the day later, that same man got himself involved in a shootout between the cops and a gang. What? I know. That's insane. Without any access to conscious memory, he repeated the exact same situation. So on some level, the mind is like pushing this thing forward to be like, no, 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 we don't understand that. That was too overwhelming. Let's do it again. Boom. Let's do it again. Boom. Wow. Is that nuts? That is nuts because when when you first started, I was thinking, okay, when you have behavior like drug addiction, because he talks about, I think the yeah. first woman that he met, mm -hmm. and you know having addiction issues, and obviously this this latest woman also has addiction issues. That behavior is so can be so off the charts and yeah. and difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. That how does that when you file that away? How do you file something away that you that can be so confusing in the that moment. That you can't you know? understand. Oh, exactly. totally. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think that's the answer is that you file it away like partially, but then part of it like sticks out 
I always think of file folders, you know, like yeah. I like, like this probably just is because of my first several jobs were filing related, <laughs> but like the, you know, when your files are all nice and organized, you can open the drawer, you can see everything. It's, it's got a system. You can pull the file out, look at it, understand what's happening, put it away. Traumatic memories. That's what our normal memories look like. Traumatic memories don't look like that. They're, they're fragmented. They're disorganized. So it could be the open the file drawer and the file is sitting on top, so you can't see anything else. It could be that the file itself is super disorganized, so you open it, but you can't make sense of it. It could be in the wrong place, right? So it's in the completely wrong drawer, so you go looking for it, and you can't find it, and then you're not looking for it, and you do find it, right? Like, that's what traumatic memories look like. Wow. That is yeah. fascinating. But they still, our memories influence our behavior. So whether your memory is organized or not, it still can influence your behavior. And organized memory, you just have more access to. Okay. An organized yeah. memory, you could say like, this is the beginning, this is the middle, this is the end. This yeah. was the whole story. Yeah. It's just part of my story. It's not yeah. unsolved, for right. lack of a better word. Right, exactly. And you just, the, the part that, you, one of the parts that you just said right there, that like, it's a part of my story, that's integration. Okay. So you don't say like, this is the only thing about me, or this is the most important thing, or this is the only thing of value, or this is the thing that makes me broken. You just say like, oh yeah, I went through this thing and this is what it, you know, showed me about myself and the world. And it's part of my story. And I see that now and I can talk about it and relate to the emotions and put it away and it's organized. Wow. Okay. You know. So the trauma bond is based on this. I think this is just, we've, we've just renamed the repetition compulsion, right? So we have in our relationships, we have this um, compulsion to repeat that, which we don't understand. So it's really telling, I mean, you mentioned again, that he has a couple of relationships that involve being with somebody who's got an addiction issue, right? Um, so that's a suggestion that there's something that he's repeating. And I want to be super careful. I do not believe that we like this is not that you're like attracting these people or anything like that. It's just that there's a lot of stickiness in the world and we encounter it pretty often. And when we've got everything figured out, we don't get stuck to the stickiness, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Okay. So um, the trauma bond is when you've got this unresolved stuff going on and you just are, are like magnetically stuck to this person who's creating this opportunity for you to repeat so that you can understand. And sometimes it happens in two directions, right? So the person you're in a relationship with has some issue and you have some issue and you're pushing each other's buttons in a way that's like enable, enabling you to both work out your trauma from other things. Um, so that could be going on or it could just be one way. Okay. If that makes sense. Do, they, do, do you think that people in these situations that they think like, oh, Christ, here I go again? Like, I, why does this keep happening to me? Mm -hmm. Like the, the Bessel van der Kolk guy, like, I, I mean, what are the chances of that? I know, I know. Yeah. You know? Totally. And, and then I think that becomes a critical piece of this as well, which is this like shame, right? The, and it's, it's worth noting that like the letter writer, when, when, when they write, why do I keep going back? It's in all caps, like... Right. This this person is like really like angry at themselves, ashamed, trying to struggle with like what what is happening? Like why do I keep doing this? And I think like it's super this is why I don't like the language of like I'm attracting these people and stuff like that, even though that may resonate with some folks. Like 
it's, it's not conscious. Like you are not choosing this. And I think it's important if, if part of this is about getting rid of the shame in order to move forward, you can't make it your fault. Do you know what I mean? Cause it isn't. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Not at all. It's just a thing. And this, okay. So this goes to another brain piece, okay. which is um, the second thing going on here is has to do with like the fundamental disorientation of, of being in an abusive relationship, whether that's emotionally abusive, verbally abusive, physically abusive, all of the above. Um, there is this disorienting experience at the center of it. And this is happening on the brain level. This is not just like, I'm confused about what's going on. Right. Um, so very early on in the letter, the, the letter writer says that he didn't know like which, I can't remember his language, but like, he didn't know which version of her he was going right. to get. Right. Uh, she could be really loving and, and like functional. She, you know, she had a job. She sounds like she was, you know, she, she was kind of one way and then she could be out of control and full of rage and not even, you know, she's under the influence and not even there. Um, when we're in a relationship like this, where you have to become hypervigilant of the other person's state in, in an effort to predict what you're going to encounter, whether that's going to be Jekyll or Hyde and what to do about it, um, you separate from yourself. Because like, you know, and this is a process that, that naturally happens. It's adaptive. So, so what your brain is trying to do is survive. Um, but you can't be fully focused on someone else and what they're going to do and trying to predict it. And also on what's going on within you, right? So you become like neurobiologically separated from yourself. Does that mean that you might turn off your warning signals? hundred percent. The bells and whistles that might go off that say, yeah, the fight or flight. I, I don't know if that's the right. Well, the warning signs, like the red flags, right? Like it's not even just that you turn them off. It's that you actually lose access to them. Wow. I know. So think about it this way. Like when you're fixated on something outside of yourself, like think about the thing that, that fascinates you the most in the world, mm -hmm. if that's right in front of you and happening and you're really fixated on that. And then someone says like, hey, what's going on in your body? Are you hungry? Do you have to pee? Like, do you feel sore? You might be like, wait a second, what? And you have right. to kind of like focus and be like, okay, wait, did I eat? Hold on. I guess I am hungry. Wait, I didn't eat. That's weird. I didn't feel that. And it's been six hours, right? Right. It's because you're so focused right. on the on something outside of yourself. Right. But And in his case, he's focused on her behavior and what he might get when he walks in the door. Right. And how that's going to feel. Right. But he can't feel it. Right. Wow. Okay. I have to stop saying wow. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just find this stuff fascinating. Okay. It's super fascinating. It it's is. Super fascinating. And it's, um, and he's in danger. He's literally in danger. Like, I don't yeah. want to like. He is. Like miss that piece. Cause it's, it's certainly there. Um, so, Okay our brains have limited capacity, right? So you can only focus intensely on so many things. So when you're so fixated on something like this, when you're so hypervigilant, you have to become disconnected from yourself. That's brain adaptation. Um, they call, there's this part of the brain that they call the Mohawk of self-awareness because it kind of runs through the, the center, the midline of your brain. And when your fight or flight is activated, when your amygdala is having a, a, a strong response because you're in danger, 
the, your brain reprioritizes all of its functions. So it disconnects from your sense of knowing, from your sense of self, from your decision-making in order to keep you alive. So it's trying to keep you alive. It's trying to, this is all evolutionary and it's for survival. But the thing that happens is that since you're in this up and down of this relationship where you never know what you're going to get and you, you get stuck in this hypervigilant place, you actually lose your sense of knowing. Mm. Like on the brain level, this is not like, this is not just about like making the right or the wrong choice. This is like what your brain is trying to do. It shuts down. Effectively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it shuts down in really specific ways because it's heightening other things and shutting down other things because you're actually in danger. Okay. It's also just random side note. It's your brain, the part of your brain that's assessing threat cannot tell the difference between emotional danger and physical danger. It's just threat. Okay. This is why like, we need to understand that emotionally abusive relationships are destructive to the brain and body as you know in a similar way or it, it's a it's a different thing right than physical abuse but they're not like one's not like more or less than the other they're both destructive got it and so like from the outside and even sometimes from a different perspective right it sounds like in this case like he's gotten away a couple of times and he can kind of see clearly right um and so from the outside, when you can see clearly, you think like, well, okay, this is clear. It's abusive. Just leave. And this is what we tell people all the time when they're in abusive relationships, just leave. But inside, like you're, you just, you, your brain is going like, wait, I don't understand what happened. Right. Let me go back. It's like, I'm, I'm picturing like when you're in a situation, like there are these stories of like people whose houses are burning down, you can see it, you know, you're in danger and you're like, but wait, I need to go get, but wait this, right? Like you just, you don't, all things are showing and telling you and you understand that you're in danger and yet you're putting yourself back in that situation anyway, or trying to. Right. And a critical part of like that part of the Mohawk of self-awareness is that um, it's the part of your brain that helps you decide what to do. So you can't move, you can't make a decision unless you're connected to that part of your brain. Okay. You have to like orient first in order to move. You know what I mean? How do you do that? Well, okay, good question. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of the like what's going on or at least part of what's going on. What do you do about it? I think number one is like, this is one of the reasons this podcast is a thing that we're doing is that like, understand it, right? Like this is not like a thing you're choosing or a way in which you're messed up or anything like that. It's like right. your brain is trying to keep you alive. Something, you know, outrageous is happening to you. You're having a normal reaction to it and you're trying to figure out what's happening. So I think like step one is understand it and then drop whatever shame is attached to this story. So tell you yourself, right. You can't feel shameful about this. I mean, it, it, you literally don't mm -hmm. have control in the moment. Right. 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 Totally. I mean, you, you cannot make mm -hmm. choices. And it's like, it's like being ashamed of that. I always say this is like being ashamed of being hungry. Like these part of what's going on, even though this is like, we talk about relational things as if they're separate from our bodies. Part of what's going on is just biological. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So if you are exposed to this for a longer period of time, does it do more damage? I mean, is, does, that, does that part of the brain get 
shut down to a greater degree? I mean, is it, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, yes. Um, I mean, so this is like a partial answer. Cause like part of whatever, whenever I'm talking about the brain, like we don't fully know is the answer. Right. Um, but from what we do know, um, neural connections, the more they happen, the stronger the connection gets. So if you think about it, like a hiking path, right? If you walk a path, if one person walks a path in the woods, it's not really going to make a big dent. If a thousand people walk that exact same path, it's going to start making a divot in the ground. Um, and that gets stronger and then easier to kind of fall into, if that makes sense. Um, so the more your brain had, so if there's a connection between point A and point B, the more that path is traveled, the stronger the connection goes, which just means the quicker it happens. Okay. And our brains are, um, are kind of wired to stick to that stuff. It's hard to make new connections. It's not impossible, but if I want to go to point C, I have to really concentrate. If I'm at point A, I'm making all these hand gestures and realizing this is a podcast and you can't see me. (laughs) But if you're going from point A to point B and you want to change and go to point C, you have to do that over and over and over again on purpose and intentionally in order to make your brain not automatically go from point A to point B. Okay. Does that make sense? So to give the example of him, so say he's, he doesn't just to go back to, he doesn't know what he's going to get when he walks in the door at night. Mm-hmm. So if it keeps happening over and over and over and over again, yeah, would it get to the point where as soon as like he left work for the day, like things would start to shut down as soon as he got oh, in the car. So fully, it wouldn't even, it wouldn't yeah. even be when he walked in the house, it would be, yeah, or it starts at lunchtime when he's talking thinking about the anticipation of what might happen. Fully. And then totally. how does that affect your life in other ways? Right. You know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. what you're thinking and how you're responding to things. And other people and what, what how it makes the rest of your relationships look. So to- exactly. totally. Yeah. Okay. So part of this is like, just like, okay. I, and it sounds like this, you know, this, this person has done a lot of work on themselves. They've been doing therapy. They've been doing meditation. They've been doing classes, all stuff like that. Um, really actively trying to understand that's so, uh, you know, a lot of the path has already been walked, you know, right. That it's like, okay, so first of all, understand what's going on and then drop the shame. Um, and then you can work on a couple levels simultaneously. So the one way to combat the disconnection that you experience in an abusive relationship or a series of abusive relationships is to reconnect with yourself. And that Mm -hmm. can happen. It doesn't have to happen relationally. That can happen like by doing stuff that you want to do every day and, you know, like, connecting with who you are and who you knew yourself to be before these relationships. Making those choices for yourself. Exactly. Totally. Okay. Okay. And kind of imprinting them. Right. And right. so like that, what that means is like you, you know, make yourself a really delicious like meal that you choose that you want to eat just for yourself. And then say like, Oh, I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm doing this for myself. I did this for myself. Right. Right. And you're, you're reestablishing those neural connections to the, to the part of the brain that's responsible for self-awareness, okay. which is going to make it so that you are better oriented to respond from yourself and not the other person, not from outside of yourself. And then the other critical thing that's going on here is that there's this really tiny, like little thread in the letter about this loneliness. Right. So if the, like, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor for this, but like if the if the foundation is laid by all of his previous experience, the thing that's catapulting him into repetition 
is this loneliness and whatever's underneath it that hasn't been addressed. Okay. So he keeps going back ultimately because of the, the loneliness, the sadness that might be there. That's the thing that that's like the spark, I think, right? Like I, just from what he's saying, it sounds like there's loneliness and then not just loneliness, but there's something underneath it, right? There's a fear of being alone forever. There's a fear of being unlovable and, and your, your being alone is proof of that or something like, you know what I mean? Like there's a fear beneath the fear of staying alone. And that's the thing that's making him on some level say, well, it's better to be with this person than to be alone. Okay. Which a lot of people do. I oh, mean, yeah. that, that, that's what you hear all the time. Right. You know, absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I've always heard that from friends and, and colleagues and, you know, it's, it's, they ultimately don't want to be alone, but I, I never understood why that was mm-hmm. the better answer mm-hmm. than a, a situation that was eating at your soul. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think like being, you know, having been in situations where like there's a kind of loneliness you experience when you're in relationship with somebody, that's a deep, dark kind of loneliness. Yes. Versus, right. There's a loneliness in when you're by yourself, that's, that could be an ache for sure, but it doesn't necessarily, it can be bittersweet in a way. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, so, so, so dark. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I think understand and drop the shame, reconnect with yourself and address the fear underneath the loneliness. And then if you're still having trouble, like we think we always have to do this alone. And I think this, this narrative is still underneath a lot of our stuff, even though I think in our culture, we're, we're working against that. Um, Give yourself like create some system of accountability, right? So the letter writer uh, mentions a daughter and having a really good relationship with her, right? Recruit her and make her your point person. So that every time you're tempted to text your ex or get back together with her, you recruit your daughter instead. And then you and her do something super distracting. So you get through that moment of loneliness, um, doing something constructive that reconnects yourself with yourself and then create a big structure. It doesn't just have to be that one person. It can be a group of people or friends or like have four or five people you can get in touch with when you're in those moments so that you have something else to do. You don't have to completely fix it within yourself. Right. Right. No, I thought the same thing. And it sounds like he has a wonderful relationship with his daughter, which he should be very proud of, you know? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, he has, he has great things to say about her. And I, I'm sure that it breaks her heart to see him yeah. in these situations. Yeah. So, you know, she could be his, his, his truth teller. She could his be, catalyst. she wants yeah. him to be happy. She only right. wants the best for him. So mm-hmm catalyst in the other direction. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's really, that's really good. Um, okay. I don't think I have anything else. Do you for him? No, no. I I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I feel for you. It's, it's, it sounds like a really, it's been a really rough road, but you come across as a, a positive person who's, who's trying to do the right thing and does the right thing and your intentions are good. And I, I find in my life, people who are inherently positive mm-hmm. can get past just about anything. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that seems like your, your North star, your, um, mm-hmm. your 
attitude. So Mm -hmm. I wish him the best. Yeah. I know it's difficult. Good luck. Um, What did he call himself? Why do I keep going back? keep, Keep going back. Yep. Good luck. Go. Why do I keep going back? You deserve more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we wanted to, to wrap up the podcast. One of the things that I talk about all the time that I completely made up, but is actually a real thing based in brain science. Like most of the things I make up are based <laughs> in something. They sound wacky, but they're real. Um, is this concept of the tiny little joy. Um, so we, one of the things that you were, you know, you're asked a little while ago, like, how do you, you know, undo some of that wiring in the brain? Um, you connect with the parts of your brain that are not online when you're feeling overwhelmed and, and afraid. And a a critical part of that brain, a critical part of that brain structure is the part that's responsible for creativity and joy. And we become completely disconnected from that, especially if you have trauma that goes on for years and years and years. Um, so reconnecting by engaging with a tiny little joy, it does not have to be big. You don't have to go and like start living this kind of silly, joyful life out of nowhere, um, is a way to kind of shoot little neural connectors to the part of your brain that's kind of offline. Um, and so tiny little joys, this is how we're going to always end the podcast. Do you have one? I I have one. I I don't, I think it's right. Um, But I, I live in Boston and it's, um, you know, winter in New England and it's, it's cold and it's, um, you know, we get a little weather weary here. Mm-hmm. Um, and my husband actually pointed this out to me recently um, because I'm from here. We both grew up in New England, my sister and I, not my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and our encounters these days are so few and far between, you know, sometimes the only people I'm talking to are when I'm out walking the dog or mm-hmm. when I'm doing errands. And he pointed out that um, here in New England, you know, the weather is always a safe topic. And we <laughs> we always take the um, positive note here, like no matter what's happening in the weather. For example, uh, it was pouring rain all day Saturday, miserable day. And we went out to do an errand and, you know, the weather comes up, oh, it's raining. And the immediate answer was, well, yeah, but it's not snow. I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's not snow. It would be, you know, four feet if it was snow or today it's really cold, but it's sunny. Um, and that's the answer you get. Oh, it's cold out today. Yes, but it's sunny, you know? So there's always kind of this, I think it's like a New England, like reminder of the weather could be worse. So. <laughs> Um, buck up, (laughs) buck up and enjoy the moment. And it's, you know, I don't know. I just, I find it amusing. And now that it's been pointed out to me, I kind of like try and, um, create those moments where I can get that answer and get that little positive feedback in the day. I love that that so much. Does that work? Is that a time? No, it's like, it's it totally, it's, I feel like I'm going to use that as an example now because it's so perfect. Like, cause I think part of the thing with tiny little joys is finding the, the, there's always a little sliver of light in the darkest of darks. There's right. always a little sliver sliver of light. And like, that's a perfect example where you're just like, I mean, the weather in New England is like outrageously horrible sometimes. Like <laughs> it, it is. But even like if there's a snowstorm, like we'll say, well, I talk about them. It's me. We'll say, okay, but, but it's in January. So it's not as bad as if it was in December because in December it's, it's dark earlier. So there's always like a way to manipulate it, even when it's horrendous (laughs) that to make it better than it is. So it's a reframe. I love that. It is a reframe. 
It's, it's and like it, you're. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it, it, everyone does it here. I swear to God, you remember? Yeah, I mean, oh, totally. You, you lived in Worcester. The weather was worse there for some reason, but um, <laughs> there's always that reframe, which is I don't know. It, it gives you a little bit of hope. Yeah, it does. And like, and the and the um, oh God, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a little touch point where you're just like, oh wait, right, okay, perspective, right? Like perspective, exactly. Yes, this is bad. It's also temporary, right? And like the, one of the most powerful things in therapy is the question, like the two things are um, number one, notice that, right? So cl- click in, pay attention to whatever's going on in the world or in your body or whatever. And you're like, okay, wow, I'm aware. And then two is notice how it changes. Yeah. Which is a way yeah. of getting out of the spiral of like, this is always going to be this way. I'm always going to feel this way. It's always going to be this dark. Like, nope, it was darker in December. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it'll be light again. Okay. It's January. That means it's a little closer to the days are like 15 seconds, lo- you know, longer in terms of the but sun. But you could feel so it. Funny. It makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. I love what's that. yours? Thank okay. You. I have a show and tell. This is funny. Again, on a podcast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, um, cry. I know, sorry, but it's, it's like okay. a happy cry. It is a um, happy cry. This is, I'm holding up this thing that Lisa just sent me, which is our dad's um, old sweatshirt, which is like beat up. It's probably from Costco. <laughs> I'm sure it is. It's beat up. Um, he died on Christmas Day, 2005. Um, so it's been 15 years this year. Okay. And um, I just got this in the mail from her. It's kind of been like, it's like the sisterhood of the traveling pants, but with the sweatshirt, it's been kind of passed around. We have, there's six of us in, in our family, six siblings. And so it's been passed around a little bit and, um, and I have it now and I've been putting it on like really intentionally. Like when I get my PJs on at night, I put it on. Cause like my <laughs> quintessential memory of dad is like dad in his PJs at night, like bopping around the kitchen, like finding Doritos and getting really <laughs> excited about them. <laughs> being it was like, like pure joy. It was. <laughs> and he would open the cabinet and be like, Oh, Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> And then like sitting on the couch and watching a hockey game or a Frasier or whatever. And I find myself like I put it on at night and I like, I feel I like am, am able to embody it in that way where I'm just oh, like I love that. bopping around, sitting on the couch, getting really excited about like, oh, I have Hershey kisses in the house. <laughs> like, woohoo, you know? And it's like, of course I do. I bought them. It's not a surprise, but also <laughs> it's like, it's this, this way of viewing the world that is just, he was, I feel like in, I didn't actually even do this on purpose, but now that I'm thinking about it, he's, he was like inherently directed towards those tiny little joys. And that was such a gift to be raised by someone who was always just even in his own life, like yeah, out and thinking like, Oh, this is so exciting. Isn't this exciting? Isn't that, you know? So yeah. Yeah. And I think of it like this was way before like work from home, obviously. So he mm. would have the sweatshirt like over a dress shirt. Like <laughs> it would never be mm-hmm. like a t-shirt of the sweatshirt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like he just like slipped into it, you know, put it right over his dress shirt that he had on during the day. It's like a Mr. Rogers situation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's a great memory. I'm glad, I'm glad that that is doing that for you. Yeah, no, I love it. And it's, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't expect it, but it's just, it's just nice. It's a nice way to like sort of access those memories. Yeah. It puts you in the, in the mindset. Puts you in yeah. the, yeah. Totally. That's great. I love it. And that. now I like look forward to it. Cause I'm like, oh, now it's, it's sweatshirt time. 
Yay. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Um, So subscribe to us. I think we're officially on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the things. So hit subscribe. Share this with somebody. If you want to hear what we think, um, email us at thetraumatapes at gmail.com. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mac. This was great. Thanks for including me. No, it's so fun. Thank you.